This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. This week on our show, we're talking with Todd Roybal. He is a publisher, director, and co-founder of Encia Media. In this role, he's responsible for overall leadership in the Enzia Media platform, which includes Enzia's award-winning print and online magazine, live events, and more. Roybold has interviewed luminaries such as oceanographer Sylvia Earle, the Nature Conservancy president Mark Tersek, late Nobel Prize winner Wingari Mathai, and numerous others. He regularly writes about environmental communications, sustainability, wildlife protection, and more. Todd is also a frequent speaker and moderator at national and international events focused on the intersection of media and the environment. And in full disclosure, I have written two articles for NCA Media, um, just so everybody knows that I, there's, a, there's a connection there. That's how I got to know Todd. Todd, um, welcome to the Talos Land Trust podcast. Is there anything you want to add to the introduction? No, it's great to be with you, and I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Yeah, thank you. And Todd's in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, right? That's correct. Actually, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, but you know, the Twin Cities is all pretty much one big, uh, big metropolis. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, we are doing this podcast in the time of COVID-19. Brett has set me up a, an isolated sound booth away from him that's absolutely disinfected and wiped down. And uh, it's kind of not what we normally do. We normally do this live on the radio. So it's um, this is an interesting, interesting way of, of doing this. Yeah, and here in Minnesota, we're actually sheltering in place also. Um, I think my wife and I and our toddler haven't left our neighborhood for the past three weeks and spent most of that time cooped up in our house. So I totally understand what you're going through there. Yeah, we're, you know, we're pretty fortunate out here because we're so rural and um, we have lots and lots of public land. So I, I don't say this to make you feel bad, but we've been fortunate enough in our family to get out for a you know, seven to 10 mile hike almost every day, um, which also helps keep my children calm during schoolwork times. I'm jealous of you, but I have to say that we're actually where we live, just a few blocks away from the Mississippi River. And so we go explore the ravines and the, the forests along the river. I've seen, you know, bald eagles and coyotes over there. So we have our own little oh, slice of awesome. nature here in the, in the city. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah. What is your background um, and what led you to become a journalist? Yeah, so I've had a really circuitous background like a lot of people, I imagine. You know, at one time I was a heavy equipment operator. I was running cranes and bulldozers. Another time I was a professional musician in my career. And so I've kind of veered in a lot of different directions. But that passion for the environment has been kind of a, a through line um, during my entire career. And so just about a little over a decade ago here, I made a pivot to move more into the world of journalism. I'm actually not a journalist myself, but I'm the publisher at Encia, which means that I kind of run the whole operation. I meet with our editorial team. I do a lot of fundraising so that we're able to publish stories. But I've just always been really passionate about that intersection of communications, media, magazines in particular, and also the environment. So I feel like I'm in a really good space right now. Yeah, that's that's an awesome job. And for anybody who hasn't checked out Encia Media, it's www.encia.com. Yep, that's correct. And it's E-N-S-I-A. 
And um, I've enjoyed really working with you guys as a writer. Um, but there are, I'd like to point people to, to the website in particular, because there's a lot of uh, incredible information on there and really well-written and researched articles. Yep. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I would definitely spend a lot of time on, you know, thinking of story ideas, new angles to the stories, and uh, have an excellent team that does a lot of editing and fact-checking, which we really pride ourselves in, too. So what is Encia? How did this come about? <laughs> so the name Encia or the or what we're doing well, with Encia? All of the above. I can answer both. Yeah. <laughs> all of the yeah. above. So a lot of people ask us about the name. They say, what does that even mean? It sounds like a brand of pasta or something like that. Right. Uh, so the story behind Encia is that we actually, about uh, 12 or so years ago, we launched a print magazine called Momentum. And we ran Momentum magazine for a few years. But then we realized that there were a lot of Momentum magazines out there. And so we wanted to do something a little bit different. So we spent a lot of time thinking about what we could rename Momentum. And all the great ideas we came up with were either taken by someone else or they really weren't that great of an idea after all. And then we realized that Momentum had a tagline, which was covering environmental solutions in action. And so we took that environmental solutions in action and kind of scrunched it together and came up with Encia. And so that's the early origin of the name. Okay. Okay. And is it always, yeah. have you guys always been based up there in Minnesota? Yeah, we've always been based in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is really interesting you know, being located here in the middle of the country and not on one of the coasts. I think it gives us a, a unique vantage point on a lot of things happening um, around the around the country and around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you have a, a – I think it's a, a different way of looking at things than, than the coasts. Yeah, I mean, especially if you look at those maps of where most media in this country is consolidated. You know, it's a lot on the West Coast, a lot on the East Coast, especially in the kind of D.C., New York corridor. So I think it's a yeah it's a good place for us to be outside of that um, outside of those areas. And you're associated with the with the, the university, right? Yeah, that's right. So we started um, up within the University of Minnesota. We're housed at the university. We like to say that NCA is powered by or published by the University of Minnesota, specifically the Institute on the Environment. Um, however, we operate an editorially independent. So. We have a really nice firewall between the university and what we're doing on the editorial side of NCIA. And I think another thing worth talking about with NCIA is that you're not um, you're not selling ads. You're not tied into the um, publishing industry, I guess, in in that way, right? Yeah, definitely. So we operate as a nonprofit media outlet, which means that we rely on support, uh, just like a public radio station would from from listeners or in our case, readers, um, from foundations and, you know, grants and opportunities like that. So no advertising for us, um, but definitely a lot of fundraising and other avenues. Right. But that, do you feel like that gives you, um, uh, more independence as far as, as journalism and start as far as the storytelling? Well, you know, that's a really good question. I was just talking to someone the other day about you know, foundation support for nonprofit media. And while nearly all foundations are really great about saying, you know, you do what you do, we're going to give you the money, it's going to be hands off completely, um, you know with any funder you're talking to that they have a specific agenda or interest areas that they're, they're concerned about. So you always have to be careful to maintain that, that separation between the funder and the publication. And I think we do a really good job of doing that. But they, what you're saying is that, that kind of sense of, of, of what the publisher, I'm sorry, what the funder 
likes, where they lean is always kind of in the back of your head. Yeah. I mean, so for example, a funder might be really interested in conservation in the American West. You know, that's what, where they invest a lot of their funding and they're giving us funds because we know that we might do stories about that topic. Uh-huh. So there's alignment there topically, but they're not saying, and I, and I wouldn't take money from a funder who said, you have to talk to person X or report on topic Y, you know, something like that. Right, right. Yeah. And so, so far they've been fairly, your funders have been fairly supportive of, of that model. Yeah, definitely. And um, we've seen this across kind of the nonprofit media industry. Okay. Well, the reason I wanted to have this podcast is to talk about the challenges that environmental journalism faces. Um, uh, It's very difficult, I think, oftentimes to communicate um, environmental issues and and science to the general public uh, in a way that's uh, digestible. But also, there's so many different outlets, I guess, and publications that are not fact-based and that are not, um, don't follow a journalistic uh, ethics. And and so there's there's that tension too. Yep, definitely. Absolutely see that all the time. Um, One way we've kind of tried to work around that is we do a lot of partnerships with larger legacy media outlets that people have really heard of, you know, such as The Guardian or Scientific American and others. And so if we can start to co-publish stories with outlets like that, this was an early part of our model in the beginning, but it's still really a big part of what we do now. We help to build up credibility of our own publication, which people might not have heard of if they say, oh, NC is associated with, you know, this particular publication that I know and trust really well. And we found that that model really works well for us. So let's define environmental journalism. What is that? Oh boy, that's the great question because I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what isn't environmental nowadays? Yeah, exactly. Look, if you look at like climate change, I mean, it affects the economy, it affects education, it affects, of course, the natural environment. Um, I don't know. For us, though, we kind of put a boundary of what is environment in terms of different topic areas that we might report on. So you know, I mentioned climate change, but also what's happening around deforestation or plastic pollution or businesses and industries trying to become more sustainable, produce, you know, biodegradable products. So it really is this wide swath of issues. It covers pretty much all elements of the economy, our day-to-day lives, you know, everything. So yeah, the topic, environmental journalism is pretty much becoming everything nowadays. Right. Yeah. And, and in a way that totally makes sense because, or I guess in most ways, it totally makes sense because yeah. without, uh, uh, you know, the environment had the impact that that has on our daily lives anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's where we live. It's the air we breathe. It's the food we eat. I mean, it's all, it all has an environmental connection. And what distinguishes environmental journalism from advocacy? And I, I'm thinking, especially in terms these days of, say, when a directive comes out of the Trump administration that harm, that, that takes away protections in the Clean Water Act, for example, yep. um, and then you tell a story on that, what's, it, what's the line between that and, and advocacy? Yeah, I mean, this is like, this is the million dollar question right now within um, journalism and environmental journalism, too is where is that line between what we've typically thought of as journalism, which is simply, you know, here's what one side says, here's what the other side says, no opinion, you know, no bias in the story, um, versus some of the things we're seeing nowadays, which nowadays, which personally are just really egregious um, affronts to the environment. How do you 
pull back on not being an advocate, you know, in a lot of these instances. And I've talked to a lot of my peers out there who are really struggling with this question. Um, and some of them are starting to blur the line even more, especially climate journalists who I've talked to have said, there aren't two sides to this issue anymore. You know, right. there's one side, there's one side, here's what the science says. And I think that's what a lot of it comes back to is, is what does the science tell us about these issues? And obviously, you know, science is evolving and it's changing. We're learning new things every day. But I think if you're on the side of science when reporting on a lot of these environmental issues, you're probably coming at it from a pretty good place. Um, you know, but the big issue now is that there are a lot of people who say that, well, the science is being politicized. And if you take a position based on the science, you're being an advocate. I don't buy into that, though. I don't agree. I don't agree with that. So I say trust the science as much as you can. Um, also look at what are the human dimensions of the issues you're reporting on. Be true to those human elements of it. Uh, and just do the best you can to be, you know, an unbiased reporter. But, um, you know, it reminds me of something that um, uh, somebody at the Texas Tribune said one time, the, the, one of the founders of the Texas Tribune. He said, we're a nonpartisan publication, but that doesn't mean that we're non-thinking. And I really like that, yeah, I like that, that approach that. to journalism. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's my approach to you. Yeah, because I think that a lot of times when I um, um, listen to certain radio programs or read certain uh, um, articles, it sounds kind of like, well, there's actually a term for it. It's both siderism, right? Yes. When you, yep. uh, a Democrat says this and a Republican says this, a scientist says this and a mining executive says that. And they're, they're presented as if they're both equal, equally yep. weighted. And, and so the reader is left to suss out what's true and what's not. And uh, instead of having the, the journalist explain what, what is real and what's not. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a place where the journalist really should be thinking about how do I explain this issue, um, provide background on the topic, help the reader to really understand what do we know? What is this, what, again, what is the science saying about this issue? This issue? Um, what do we know to be true? And to have that background maybe as a sidebar in the story or something so you can test the quotes against, you know, what does the scientific community or what do most experts say about this topic? And then figure out for yourself, you know, are they making this up or is this, you know, is what they're saying legit? Right. We're talking to Todd Roybal. He's the publisher and the director of Encia Media, which is at www.encia.com. E-N-S-I-A dot com. Um, Todd, so one of, the, one of the first things that I really liked when I stumbled across Encia and then was reiterated in, in working with you guys was um, that it, you're not just telling doom and gloom stories. There is a yeah. certain, um, uh, maybe, perhaps optimism isn't the right word, but there's, there's, there, there's something solutions oriented about the the way that you do your journalism and I'd love for you to talk about that yeah definitely that's a huge part of what we do this whole idea of solutions journalism you know we've seen study after study coming out lately saying that you know with all this negative news in the world more and more people are just tuning out completely um, but these environmental issues we've been discussing are really critical we want people to know what's happening but we also want them to know what's being done to fix these problems. You know, and that's really the approach with solutions journalism that we've taken since day one, 
is to say, yeah, we recognize these are huge issues we're facing in the world, climate change, deforestation, whatever it might be. But if you just stop the conversation there, I feel like we're doing our readers a disservice. We have to show them that there are people and organizations you know, around the world who are working to solve these problems. And the solutions they're coming up with may or may not work. And we're really clear about saying that in stories. We're not cheerleading for a particular solution. We're being really critical of the solutions that are being developed. But I think that gives people a sense of the whole story rather than just stopping with the problem and just ending the story there. What's, uh, what are one or two examples of stories that, that kind of stand out in that, in that realm of solutions-oriented journalism? Yeah, so we did a piece, I'd say, about six months ago that I think is a really great example of this. You know, there's a lot of talk right now around how do we clean up polluted water. And something that a lot of people talk about is they'll say we need more green infrastructure in our towns and cities. So we did a story exploring this whole idea of green infrastructure. We explained the concept to our audience. We told them about, you know, why it's being implemented in different places around the U.S., but then we really took a critical look at, is this working or not? And found that in a lot of cases, um, communities have the best of intentions when they set up, you know, some sort of green infrastructure in their community. But then they don't, they don't explain to the maintenance people how to maintain that green infrastructure. You know, the whole system kind of falls apart. So that's an example of, you know, looking at a problem, looking at the solution, and then being really critical of, if, is that solution working or not? Yeah, that's a that's a great example. Um, give me another one. So another one that I really like pointing people to. We've done a lot of stories related to plastic pollution um, in our rivers and our lakes and the ocean, and really looking at you know what's driving plastic pollution, where are the hotspots around the country, around the world, and then the solutions part of that is digging into what's being done to fix this problem. You know, what are the policies that are being put in place that are working to reduce you know, the plastic from getting in the water in the first point, or what's being done to develop new biodegradable plastics. And are those new materials any better than what we're producing right now? You know? So that's another example of what we mean with solutions journalism. I had a bunch of thoughts uh, thoughts on that. So, you know, we, there's the green infrastructure issue, and then there's the, um, the, the plastic story. But one of the ones that I... I that's totally relevant to this moment right now. I was going to wait to talk about coronavirus till later, but one of the stories that you you guys co-researched and wrote with, I believe, The Guardian recently about how environmental issues potentially bring about pandemics, like the ones we're, one we're suffering through right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're still understanding the origins of the coronavirus um, and you know exactly where this particular um, virus came from within the market in China. But we can point to other examples and other instances around the world where researchers have been able to say, you know, biodiversity lost in this particular location or the illegal wildlife trade in a particular part of the world is directly connected to an infectious disease that then took hold and spread throughout a region, a continent, or the world. So we know those examples are happening from past from past examples. And so this story was really um, a really large overarching look at, you know, what do we know about this connection between the loss of habitat, potential risks from future pandemics like the one we're seeing right now, and what do we need to do to be prepared? And I think that there's a lot more to this story to be told. Um, When that piece came out, the first thing I thought was, this is the tip of the iceberg for a much bigger story. 
And we oh, yeah. really need to start figuring out what are the solutions here. Um, I don't know that we know. We know what some of the solutions are. We don't know all the solutions. But there's a lot more of that story that needs to be told. Right. And, I, and I, you know, Ebola comes to mind um, yeah. in particular. Yeah. There was a I, – I can't remember if it was Radiolab or one of the other uh, podcasts out there that had done a deep dive both into the origins of Ebola and even AIDS, um, HIV yeah. AIDS, and the, the – um, the idea that these diseases were allowed to enter into the human bloodstream or the human body um, yep. through environmental, um, I guess, let's just say, through in, in human intrusion into ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. The further we, we go into these forests and you know, places humans have never been before or have had limited contact in the past, the more we're opening ourselves up to, you know, additional viruses and, you know, hopefully not, but most likely to future pandemics like the one we're experiencing now. So the, absolutely, there's a connection between, you know, environmental change around the world and uh, in situations like this. I also want to say, though, something I've been really thinking a lot about with this current pandemic is that in some ways, it's easy to point a finger and say, you know, well, this started in that particular market and, you know, there's there to blame. This can happen you know, it just so happens that this particular strain of coronavirus came about in that particular market, but it could happen anywhere in the world. You know, it could happen in North America, and it has happened with some some outbreaks in the past. So we just have to really rethink our overall relationship around the world. With We have to rethink our relationship with nature all around the world, I think. Yeah, I think it is worth noting that um, most uh, researchers tend to tend to think that the Spanish flu of 1918-19 that killed something like 50 million people worldwide actually started in Kansas. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So a lot of examples like that throughout history. We don't know where the next one's coming from, but we know the more that we disrupt nature, the more likely it is going to happen again. In your in your way of thinking, how does this current pandemic, the 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 coronavirus, COVID-19, what does it tell us about climate change? Yeah, and it's a really difficult question right now in this moment because some people are saying, "Oh no, 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 this is not the time to talk about climate change, you know, we've got to deal with this pandemic saving human lives right now." And there are others who are saying, "No, this is absolutely the time to be talking about an issue that could cause you know, the same kind of repercussions, albeit over a longer time horizon in the future. And what are we going to learn from this situation? So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, I'm not personally trying to draw too many parallels just yet. I think a lot of us are just in survival mode at this right. very moment. And so we're just trying to get through the, the immediate crisis. But over the long term, I definitely think that you know, we need to think about the parallels between what we're experiencing now and climate change. Um, the, on the plus side, it's been incredible to see so many people mobilized for the common good in such a short period of time. So that gives me hope that we'll be able to tackle something related to climate change. Um, another thing, too, that I was just talking with someone uh, about the other day was the issue of environmental justice, which is definitely related to climate change. And they were saying, you know, to those people who say, no, now's not the right time to talk about climate change, I bring up, this is this person speaking with me, they said, I bring up the issue of environmental justice. And I say, look at the communities that are being impacted the most, they're likely going to be impacted the most over the coming weeks. 
those are communities that have suffered the most from environmental justice-related issues in the past years and decades. So there are definite parallels, I think, between a lot of what we're seeing around you know, environmental justice, climate change, and now this most recent pandemic. Um, we'll sort that out over time. We'll report on that over time at NTIA. Um, but like I said, a lot of us are just in basic survival mode and just trying to get through yeah, this. Yeah, very understandable. One of the yeah. things that makes me think yeah. about is um, th this question of preparedness. Um, a couple of years yeah. ago, I wrote an article for a, a different publication about um, how Europe was dealing with uh, all the refugees coming both from, from Africa and from the Middle East. And, um, and what, what occurred to me while working on that article was as the sea levels rise, as sea levels rise, and we're going to have millions of people moving, needing to move, um, how do we plan ahead to deal with that mass movement of people? And I think, and, and so then we get, to, we get to this pandemic and we see how grossly unprepared we were to, to jump on this. And, and, and the two things for me are very linked. I'm like, man, we know this stuff is going to happen. Uh, how do we prepare? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, within the environmental field, we've been talking for years about this concept of resilience. And people often think, well, what does that mean in, in practice? Well, the COVID-19 pandemic has given us, given us a perfect example. You know, resilience means having a medical system that's prepared for the absolute worst and has the stockpiles of materials we're going to need to get through it, which we've seen has been a major challenge here in the U.S. and around the world. So that's absolutely a lesson for, for you know, as we think about climate change and climate adaptation and migration of individuals, are we really preparing for the level of uncertainty that the future um, is going to present to us? I'm not so sure we are yet. Right. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who are talking about, you know, more building more resilient systems that are both, you know, man-made and natural, but um, hopefully this will spark more action in that regard too. I mean, that may be one of the silver linings from this is that we do truly become more prepared for the environmental changes that are coming. That's a great, yeah, that's a great point. As far as a publisher and, a, and, a, and someone in journalism, how does the COVID-19 um, pandemic affect your coverage of these really important environmental issues? Whether it be climate change or plastics or green infrastructure, how does it impact you guys? Yeah, that's a really good question, too. I mean, we're not a daily news site, so we don't publish things uh, about breaking news. So our time horizon is a little bit longer. So we might commission a story that won't come out for a month or two. And so we've had to completely upend what we're doing and really become a lot more proactive and reactive to the situation now. We've, we've shelved a number of stories we've been working on or postponed them to a later date and really are taking a look at what are the connections between this, this pandemic and, and the environment? Um, what are those stories that aren't being told right now that our audience really wants to know, needs to know? We also, I think, um, I feel the responsibility we have uh, being a media outlet that reaches you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world is what's the responsibility we have to be sharing information right now that will help to keep people safe? And that's something we're definitely talking about, too, that may go a little bit beyond our, you know, typical, our typical mission as a journalism outlet, but I think is really critical for us to be thinking about now, too. Taos Land Trust has had very similar conversations of, uh, well, this is the work that we normally do, but now we uh, need to really take care of our community on, uh, in, in ways that 
we don't normally perhaps think of. And so we've had a lot of those similar discussions of, of, of how do we communicate in a way that it goes beyond what our, our typical mission statement is. Yeah, so I actually happen to be on the board of the Minnesota Land Trust, and we've been having similar conversations here too about, you know, your first thing is you make sure that your own, you know, your own staff is safe and secure and everyone's set up to work remotely and still, you know, being protected from what's going on as much as they can be. Um, but then it's thinking about, you know, longer term, this moment in time and the incredible, you know, value of nature and helping us to get through this this situation. For so many people, I've been, you know, reading about how the time they're able to spend outdoors and outside their home is what's been the saving grace in all of this and, and keeping them sane in many instances and keeping them going. So I'm, I'm one of yeah, those. Yeah, definitely. So th that value of nature is so incredibly important. And I hope that's something that comes out of this crisis, too, is that people have a deeper appreciation for the outdoors and the places that are being protected, whether it's Minnesota or, or in New Mexico. And so, in at Encia, what are some of the what are some of the stories that you think need to rise to the top more quickly, given what's happening? Yeah, so we're thinking about stories right now on the connection between. Um, we just published a piece actually this week looking at the connections between having more open space and green space available for for all communities, all different um, uh, levels of a community being really critical um, to to human health, mental health issues, especially now during something like the situation we're experiencing. We're also looking at stories talking about how, you know, our entire supply chain uh, needs to be more sustainable, more resilient, as we were just discussing in the face of, you know, not only the pandemic we're experiencing right now, but future climate disruptions that are being predicted. Uh, so there's just a couple examples of stories we're, we've either recently published or just about to start working on. Hi, this is Christy Nortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. We need your cash. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm talking with Todd Roybold of Encia Media. He is the publisher and director and co-founder of Encia Media, which can be found at www.encia.org. Dot com. Stepping away from, from coronavirus, uh, Todd, although I don't know if we really can at these moments completely, but just going back, I guess, to, to really to the environmental writing and journalism is what are, what are some of the most important things you've learned while you've been a publisher of this, this online magazine? Yeah, so I think a few things really stand out for me. Um, one is that solutions journalism really does work. Um, we've been able uh -huh. to see, you know, if you think about an issue like climate change, which is so polarizing for a lot of people, if you take a solutions journalism approach to these stories, we've seen these issues break across different, you know, political divides, cultural divides, et cetera. Um, just giving people that sense of what's being done to fix the problem seems to really resonate with a lot of our readers. And so I think that's worked really, really well. Um, another thing is that you know, this is going to be sound really obvious, but you have to tell people what's in it for them or why they should care about the issue. And a lot of times with coverage of the environment, we think, tend to think, and I think this way as someone who's really, you know, cares about the, the outdoors and nature that, well, people should care about these issues just because they should care about nature. 
you know, we should protect the forest because it's the forest. You know, why wouldn't you protect it? But for a lot of our readers and a lot of people, they need to know, why does this matter to me? Um, you know, how is this going to affect my life? Um, that was that point was really driven home to me um, in the, the interview I did with Sylvia Earle. She's a legendary ocean explorer. And she was saying that, you know, the ocean, most of us, you know, we might visit the ocean, we don't live on the ocean. It's somewhat detached from our lives. And she would tell people, and I don't remember the exact percentage, but she would tell them the percentage of the air that you breathe, the molecules that you breathe in that are produced in, in, in connection with the ocean and the movement of the water. And when you bring it down to that level of, wow, I need the ocean to be able to breathe, it really matters to people. And so I'm always thinking about how to make these stories you know, really connect with the, the people who might be reading them. And that goes right to the uh, subject of the green space, uh, whether you're in pandemic times or not, is um, yep. the, the green space, the open space, and the ability to get out and walk and that connection to my personal and my family's uh, well-being, physical and mental health. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen so, so many studies saying that that access to nature is a critical element of mental health. Um, so, yeah, it's a huge issue, I think, too. Well, let's start talking about some of the challenges that people who sure. cover environmental issues face. Having done some of this writing, but also at the same time been a, an advocate and, and, and a journalist at different times, I've faced definitely some hostility to, uh, to, to any issue that's dealing with the environment. So I'm going to turn it around. What kind of hostilities have you faced? I'm really curious. Yeah, I can definitely speak to uh, at times in my past when I've been. So, for example, at one point I was the, um, the head of a local conservation organization that was looking to stop oil and gas leasing in a, a critical area here in northern New Mexico called the Vividal. Yeah. And uh, throughout that campaign, there were the kind of sort of subtle uh, intimidation tactics, like someone calls your house in the middle of the night and, yeah. and asks for you and, and hangs up. And um, there were a couple of more clear threats to both myself and my family in, in that position as, a, as an advocate. It's intimidating. And, and, and it's hard to yeah. understand also because you're, 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 you, you feel like you're just doing the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, we've reported on this issue in the past, the number of, um, you know, the number of people who are being injured or killed on the front lines of environmental ag advocacy around the world is pretty staggering. But if you think about it, they're oftentimes going up against, you know, uh, some of the largest corporations in the world. I'm not saying the corporations are the ones behind it, but oftentimes there are, you know, pretty shady governments working behind, you know, working on these issues too. Um, and so that, you know, related to that, they're directly threats to reporters who are trying to cover these issues and going to these places where, you know, tensions are running high and, and uh, there's been a lot of conflict in the past. So that's definitely something we're aware of when we're, you know, looking at stories, you know, considering if a journalist is safe going into a particular place to report on a, a topic. So there are lots of threats that journalists are facing like that. Yeah, I was thinking I I uh, was I was contacted by um, someone in Panama to do a story on deforestation there. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, and and 
what was interesting to me was, I, I, my first response was, that should be some Panamanian journalists should do that, right? And, and the response was that they, they don't want to because they fear for their lives. And so they're looking for yep. someone outside of Panama who would be able to cover this uh, type of thing safely. The way it worked out, I, um, I didn't end up taking that for a number of reasons, but they ended up working with a, an Argentinian mm. journalist because that person could be, could be safe at home. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, too. Um, you remind me, though, of something else that we've been thinking a lot about at NCIA is this question of who tells the stories. You know, your point about, you know, why, why not have a Panamanian journalist tell that story? That's something we've been asking ourselves quite a bit, too, you know, in terms of, you know, who is the community impacted by the story we want to tell? And should someone from that community or connected to that community be telling that story? And that's been an ongoing conversation our team is having. We, we tend to think, more and more that, yes, someone who's part of that community should tell the story rather than parachuting someone to tell that story. And, and why is that? You know, it just, to us, it feels more authentic. It feels like uh, the community is more likely to open up if it's someone they know and trust or who can gain that trust more quickly, I guess. I'm not saying that that's a black or white issue and that's always the way we do things, but it's definitely something we've been thinking a lot more about is who's being impacted who should tell that story if who's being impacted? You know, tied into that was something else that was was impactful when I wrote the, my first story for Encia was um, Mary, uh, who was my editor there. She said um, she really wants me to put an effort into getting non-traditional voices into the article. Yep. How, how do you guys look at that? We look at that all the time. We think about. We look back at past stories we've published. We talk about. You know, what's the gender balance here? What's the diversity balance? We have the best we can, you know, kind of estimate from the stories. It's really critical to us to hear from a, you know, really diverse array of voices in the stories that we publish. We don't want to hear from the same old, you know, environmental advocates that we've heard from years now or decades. I mean, they still have amazingly important things to say. But there are a lot of new voices out there, too, that we need to elevate also. And I think that's something we really try and do. When we first launched NCIA, was back in about 2013. I remember having a conversation with our team and a couple people we were working with. And we said, you know, we could go out and interview Al Gore. You know, Al Gore's doing amazing work. He's done amazing work. But there are probably others out there who we're not hearing from, who we really should hear from. And that's been kind of a really core part of NCIA since day one is finding those new perspectives and new voices that we haven't heard from as much. I think that's that's really true. And um, my daughter and I were talking about this a little bit um, in terms of the, the coronavirus pandemic was individuals being empowered. That yes. that, yep. that in times like this, um, somebody can suddenly realize uh, the power that they have to impact, even if they're only impacting their family or um, maybe their small community or something, but but that that sense that I have a voice also. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing that, you know, some of the, we've been talking a lot about, you know, how do we solve these environmental challenges and where do those solutions come from? You know, oftentimes the solutions come from the most unexpected places. You know, someone some corner of the world is working on something they're passionate about, develop something that can be, be implemented across the, you know, across the planet. So we're definitely looking for those type of stories where someone is working on a solution 
they haven't got as much press as they should have or could have. How can we help to amplify the work that that person's doing? And what about science? Let's talk about science communication. That's a that's a, I th- I find that a very challenging thing. Is how does an environmental writer communicate uh, complex scientific ideas? You don't want to dumb it down too much. You want to respect your reader, and yet some of these these concepts are are very complex. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that you know, like you said, you don't want to dumb it down too much, but you have to dumb it down a little. And a lot of scientists don't want to hear that. Um, but we do need to make the science accessible to a broader audience. A lot of people will come up to me and they'll say, Todd, you know, one of the things we really love about NCIA is that we see you guys as a translator for a lot of this complex science. And I really like that fact that we're being seen as in that role of helping to translate or explain the science in a way that people can really get it, really understand it. I think the more we're able to do that, the more people will care about these environmental issues um, the more likely there will be adv- advocacy that comes from someone reading a story that we produce. You know, they might be able to take that story to a local, you know, board meeting or you know, community meeting or something like that, and use it as a way to explain the issue um, beyond just um, having the science to rely on. So, what's one of your favorite examples of a of a story that breaks down the science really well into something that people could actually implement? Yeah, so about a year or so ago, we did a series of stories on this new emerging technology called CRISPR. That's spelled C-R-I-S-P-R. It's an acronym. And it's this technology that allows us to edit genes and do all kinds of crazy things in the lab. And what I loved about this series of stories was that when we first heard about it, our team looked at each other and said, CRISPR, what is that? (laughs) But by the end of the series, you know, the writers, we worked with a few different writers on this series, They did a great job explaining the technology, looking at the pros and cons of how it might impact our food supply, um, and really helped not only our team, but our readers to understand this new technology and what it might mean for the environment and for food production. So there are a number of examples like that over over the years where we've taken what I think is a really complex scientific issue and really helped our audience to understand it in greater detail. I think the other example, too, that I like is, uh, is the issue of GMOs. Oh, boy, that's a super contentious topic, though. <laughs> super contentious, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, very controversial, but I think you guys have done a really good job of, of breaking a lot of that down of what, what does the science say and what does it not say. Yeah, so, I mean, I personally have my pretty strong opinions on it, which I won't share here, but I will say that... Um, it's been interesting to work with scientists, to have them write pieces for us. And that's something we've done a lot of in the past, because when you take a scientist who's working on GMOs or other topics like that that might be pretty contentious and have them lay out, you know, here's what we know about the science, here's what we don't know, it, it, it may or may not kind of change your opinion on some of these. I think GMOs, for me, it's become a little bit more of a gray area, perhaps, but I think that's, you know, that's maybe a sign of really good journalism is it gets us thinking it may change the way we think about an issue in a, in a certain way, too. Yeah, I, I really like this idea of, of not being so black and white about everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So how do you, how do you find stories? So we find stories through a number of different avenues, um, a lot of just reading ourselves of what's being reported on right now, what's hot in the news, what are the angles to that issue that aren't being told. What are the environmental connections, perhaps, to what's happening in the world? 
Um, we'll look at a lot of research papers for you know emerging studies that are coming out. But we really rely on mostly is is our network of uh, journalists around the world that we work with. They're our eyes and our ears on the ground, and they're the ones who are pitching us stories all the time. And so our team will review those ideas and suggestions we're getting from writers and then decide which ones we're going to commission and work on. How does an environmental journalist find a good subject to cover? You, you talked a little bit about reading themselves and looking around. And uh, how are some of the best uh, or the most prolific journalists jumping in there? Yeah, I would say it's a combination of looking what, what it, looking at what else is being covered out in the world um, and seeing where the gaps are in the reporting. It's also taking an issue like COVID-19 we're experiencing right now and finding those new angles to it or those new connections between, as we were talking about earlier, you know, biodiversity loss and, and this pandemic and looking at how you can, you know, tie quote unquote environmental issues into a lot of the breaking breaking news stories we have um, happening nowadays. So for example, as, as an example of that, we worked with a writer recently, Molly McCluskey, who had spent uh, quite a bit of time on a fellowship traveling the length of the U.S.-Mexico border doing research and writing stories. And we worked with her about how the, the wall and the proposed wall will be impacting cross-border and is impacting cross-border research programs. And so it's taking something like that that's been in the news or is in the news and finding new uh, new elements to the story. What do you see as the big issues that you guys are going to be covering in the coming years? I mean, obviously, COVID-19 is with us for uh, probably at least two years, if not more. Um, yeah. So that's going to be that's going to be a constantly evolving story. Um, what else is on the horizon out there? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the huge one right now. And I think for us, we've been talking to some people about this whole connection between the illegal wildlife trade and COVID-19. I think there's a lot more reporting that has to happen in that space. I think that um, just biodiversity loss overall uh, is a huge issue that's not getting the coverage that it needs right now. Uh, I also think that uh, we talked a little bit about plastic pollution. That's an easy one to say, well, it's, you know, it's far away from me, it's out in the ocean, but that's just a huge issue right now, too. So I think we'll do more reporting on that topic. I think that you know we're seeing more and more outlets like ours that are really paying more attention to issues of environmental justice. That's going to become even more crucial, too, as we look at climate change and who's being directly impacted by it. Um, so those are just a few examples of issues that are really important in our, in our view. Yeah, none of those are small. <laughs> no, we can spend a we can spend a lifetime or more reporting on those issues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we you and yeah. I could talk for hours about each one. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just to round up, we've been talking with Todd Roybal of uh, Encia Media, www.ensia.com. What uh, advice might you offer some inspiring environmental journalists? Obviously, you have a quite a varied background, as do I. What do you offer someone who, who's up and coming in this field and wants to dive in? Well, first, I just want to say thank you to everyone who is an environmental journalist or considering being an environmental journalist. It's, uh, as we've been talking about, it's a really um, difficult moment in time for journalism overall, for journalists. Um, one of my fears from this pandemic that we're experiencing right now is what it might mean for the future of journalism and especially nonprofit media. So if you are in this field or thinking about getting into the field, um, you know, my hat's off to you. 
I think that it's really going to become important, and it is important right now, to think about all the different ways stories are being told, whether it's, you know, a written piece that might appear online or in print, or is there a multimedia component to the story? Can you bring photos to the table? Um, you know, we've worked with a number of reporters over the years, and we've been fortunate to, who are also skilled at photography or doing video and really thinking about all those different ways we need to tell these stories, all the different channels we should be telling these stories on. So I guess if I had a bit of advice, it would be to think about all those different skills that you might bring to the table as a journalist. Todd, thank you for taking time today. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks yeah, me too. Um, I hope we can have it again uh, one of these days and perhaps uh, a little bit further down the road after we see where um, where we're at in this country, uh, maybe later in the year. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of things are going to change over the next few months. So I hope you all stay safe out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Thank you very much, Todd. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico. Edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.tauslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.